Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Psalm 95, verses 1 through 11. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. We're taking a brief uh, step outside of our usual sermon series, which is uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And we're doing a standalone because the power outage has actually affected one of our families, particularly the preacher for the day. And uh, he's actually, um, he's been without power for about four days now, uh, four or five days. His family uh, retreated up to New York, which is where he's from. And um, because of the weather, and so uh, he is not able to join us here to preach um, as he was scheduled to preach this morning. So um, with the remaining time that I had, um, we're preaching on a standalone today um, on a very famous passage, Psalm chapter 95. It's about worship. This passage uh, in Latin, it's called the Venite, meaning O Come. Um, It was a call to the people of God to come and worship God. And for centuries, the Christian church looked into this psalm in particular uh, to learn, to be informed, and to really to learn about everything you need to know about worship. So what does this passage teach us? Three very simple things. What worship is, why we worship, and how we worship. Very simple. What worship is, why we worship, and how we worship, okay? So the what, the why, the how. First, we're going to go into the what. What worship is. What is worship? Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that it engages your entire being. It engages your emotions. It engages your will. It engages your mind. If you look at the passage here, the first six verses or seven verses, um, there are three calls. Uh, first is one to two. Um, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. So when you talk about music, There's singing and joyfulness and shouting aloud. There's a lot of emotion. Worship is engaging your emotions. There's emotional language here. In verse 6, you see, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. The act of bowing down, the act of kneeling. Um, We're seeing the approach. Come, you know, kneel, bow down. These are action words. This is the language of the will. Verse 7 You see, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. care. Today, if you hear his voice, right? So if you listen, the act of listening, this is engaging your mind. It appeals to history, Meribah, Massa. This is the language of uh, thinking and reason, accepting his voice, uh, the mind. It's very, very important. You know, if you've been through some ritual, you know, some religious ritual, 
where you affirm the doctrines of that organization, you know, particularly a church, you know, if you've listened to the doctrines, if you affirm the doctrines, but you haven't sensed the beauty, if you haven't sensed or experienced a sense of joy, what this passage is telling you is that you haven't worshipped. Similarly, if you've had an emotional experience, but that emotional experience hasn't transformed you, hasn't changed your life to the point where you haven't bowed, you haven't submitted to the will of God, then you haven't worshipped. You haven't really worshipped. What this passage is saying is that you, know, you may be bowing, you may be doing, you may be kneeling, you know, but if you haven't sung praise in your heart, you know, if you haven't felt the beauty of God's presence in your life, then you haven't worshipped. You know, worship involves all of your emotions. Worship involves all of your thoughts, your thinking, your bowing. So when you bend your will and your emotions and your mind, you know, the psalmist here is integrating all of those things. You know, it's all coming from one person, the will, the mind, you know, um, the emotions. Verse 7, he said, why do we do this? He says, for he is our God. We are his people. We are his flock, the flock under his care. God the psalmist wants us to remember. Verses 3 to 7, he brings us through a course of history, right? Um, the psalm, and, and verses 3 to 7, he's taking, looking upon history, he's taking an inventory of the greatness of who God is, the beauty and the greatness of God. And by the time you get to verse 7, he says, we have to bow down. You know, when you look at the history of God's faithfulness, the beauty of who God is, the greatness of who God is, how can you not just bow down? submit, kneel before her God. You know, he says, yeah, you're going to sing. Yeah, you're going to shout. But by the time you get to verses 3 to 7, he says, you know, I've taken an inventory of all of who God is, the greatness of God, the greatness of our King. He says, this is our God. And that just overwhelms him. You know what worship is? Worship is you're taking the time with your heart, you know, your mind and your will and your emotions, and you're inventorying the greatness of who God is through those means to the point where it overwhelms you. Your heart is just overwhelmed because if it doesn't overwhelm you, the greatness of who God is, then you haven't worshipped. What is worship? Worship is the act of reorienting, you know, realigning, fixing your entire being around something that is of ultimate value in your life. You're taking something that you are ascribing of ultimate value in your life. You watch The Lord of the Rings, right? This, uh, the, um, I don't even know what it is, Smeagol, you know, is captivated by the ring. So captivated by the ring, it has shaped his entire being. In fact, his entire everything, even down to his, not just emotions, not just his will, not just his thoughts and his feelings, but it's even shaping the way he looks, that thing that he calls his precious, what he calls it, it calls to him. And all he can see, his whole life is bent, shaped, transformed around the presence of this ring in his life. You know, his name is changed as a result. Worship is the act of reorienting your entire life, your entire person, your emotions, your mind, your will around something that is ultimate value in your life. It's the act of recounting, reflecting on the infinite glory of who God is, 
the person of God, who he is. You're reflecting on the beauty of God, the character of God, his work, what he's done for you. It's taking an inventory of God using your emotions. That's why we sing. That's why we have singing in our worship. It's using the will. That's why we give. That's why we have offering. You know, it's why we hear the mind. It's why we hear sermons. That's why we incorporate. It's integrating all of who you are. It's taking who God is, reorienting his character, you know, just looking and beholding his character, the beauty of who he is, um, and you realize how personal at the same time he is, how loving he is, how gracious he is, how compassionate he is, to the point just over and over in cycles. If you look at our bulletin, it's written up in cycles so that we have the opportunity over and over and over to praise, to worship, to recount, to reflect on the beauty and the glory of who God is and what he's done for us to the point where it dawns on you at one point that what you are beholding, who you are beholding, you know, you say, gosh, why doesn't everybody see this? Why doesn't, everybody, why doesn't everybody's hearts just explode when they see who God is? You know, Jesus, God is the, the pearl of great price. You know what the pearl of great price is? This merchant, who is a very, very skilled merchant, he's a pearl merchant, and he's hauling up this load of pearls, and he sees, among all the pearls that he could purchase, he encounters this one, and he's got a very, very keen eye for this. He sees this one pearl. You know, and in Matthew, Jesus recounts that story, and he says, this merchant is so captivated by this pearl, it becomes his precious. He is willing to sell, to trade off everything he's got. His entire life is rearranged around this one pearl among many, many pearls. Why doesn't everybody see this? He's captivated. He sells off everything he's got for it. He gives away everything. His entire life is centered around this one thing. It blows him away. Worship is to be shaped by the truth of the gospel and who God is the beauty of who God is, because it becomes the center of your sense of worth. You know, in fact, the very word worship, you know, it comes from the Latin word worthship, which is the act of describing the worth of something in your life. You know, most people see God the way the Bible describes how we see just an oyster. You know, we don't see the pearl of great price, we see the oyster, this kind of dirty, meaningless, worthless thing. You know, you don't see the immense treasure inside. You don't see the immense worth that's captured inside that's worth giving your life for. You want, we don't see that. Most people see that or don't see that. We're completely unaware of the life-changing value of what's contained inside. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value because you've discovered it. Or some of us are in the process of rediscovering the value, the worth to something. That is precious to us. We've discovered true love. We've discovered eternal love, something that is deeper. Worship is saying, you know what, I'm ascribing ultimate value to that. That's what it is. Now, why do we do it? Why does the Bible call us to worship God? Why is it so important for us to worship God? Here's why. Scripture is very, very clear about this. It's because if you're not worshiping God If you're not worshiping God, the God here that's written, you know, verse 3, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods, it says. If you're not worshiping God, then you're already worshiping something else. That's the reason why. The Bible over and over teaches us this. That means right now, all of us 
are ascribing ultimate value and worth to something. You're either ascribing ultimate worth, you know, to God or to something else. The average person's going to say, well, I'm not really religious. I don't engage in worship. You know, that's totally untrue. Totally untrue. Because everybody, the Bible says, everybody is born a worshiper. Just boils down to what you're worshiping. Right now, you're either worshiping something other than God as your source of worth, as your, that's going to give you a sense of worth, as your center, you know, because that thing that you have is going to increase your potential, increase your options, increase your freedom, increase your joy in life. That's what you believe. That's why you worship it. Or you're worshiping God as your only source of options and potential and freedom and joy. Why do we worship Verse 3 says it's because the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. You know, it doesn't say the Lord is the only God. He's the great king above all gods. In ancient times, people lived in a polytheistic society, you know, a plural society, not much different from today, you know, meaning that there are many, many gods that they worshipped. So you worshipped, you know, you had, these worship, you had these gods and you fashioned these gods in the form of idols that were made of stone or, wo- uh, or wood or gold or silver, and you had these idols uh, in your home, and you worshipped them. You, you offered sacrifices to them. And uh, these gods represented wealth or beauty or fertility or harvest, you know, because it was an agrarian cu- culture, you know. The human heart hasn't changed a whole lot. You know, today, I mean, obviously we've traded in our you know, physical idols, we've traded in our stone or wood or silver or gold idols, um, but we've replaced them with idols of the heart. Today we still worship wealth. We still worship significance. That's why we work so hard. That's why we're overworking in our lives. We're still worshiping significance. We're still worshiping love, you know, but it comes in the form of money. It comes in the form of status, it comes in the form of your pedigree. Your, what is your pedigree? You know, um, some people have great pedigrees. They went to the right school, got the right job, in the right title, coming from the right family line, depending on what culture you're from. You know? It comes in the form of power and titles. It comes in the form of career, your career path, or beauty itself, vanity, having the right trends, setting the right trends, following the right trends. You know, um, but also looking appropriate or right. Verse 3 teaches us this, that the very essence of worship is to recognize that we're already worshiping something already. We're already worshiping something. Something that has become our Lord and King. And the verse, this verse tells us not necessarily to amputate ourselves. You know, this isn't an Amish culture. We're not saying, well, that means we don't need, uh, you know, wealth. We don't need power. You know, we don't, you know, that stuff is bad. It's not what this passage is saying, you know. But rather to transfer, to reorient the value or worth that you place in these things as our idols. It's not so much that you're amputating yourself from these things. I mean, there's a reason why you're, in, you're where you are. In fact, you know, as far as I know, you know, the Christian world is the only world I know that can integrate your work you know, and your faith, your family and your faith. You know, this, this verse teaches us that we need to transfer. We need to fix our eyes. We need to reorient the value or the worth that we place in these idols. Now, how do you know that you're worshiping an idol? How do you know that you're worshiping another God? 
For example, when you tell yourself, if I just have this one thing in my life, you know, even if it's a good thing, you know, it's, this is not just for addicts because in a, some, in a way we're all addicted to something. That's what we worship. You know, uh, if I can just have this one thing in my life, and when you say, then I'm going to have meaning, then I'm going to have joy, then I'm going to have happiness, then I have purpose in my life, that thing is your God. That thing is your God. We're all here worshiping, you know, God at church on Sunday, but your real idol, your real God, the idol that you're worshiping, you know, that's the thing that controls you. That's the thing that moves you. That's the thing that gets you. That's the, that's the thing that masters you. It's the thing that you find satisfaction in, joy in. You'd be willing to sacrifice your entire time, all your time, all your resources, all your energy. Your idol is the thing that you're afraid of losing the most in your life. Your nightmares, your real nightmares in life. Here's some examples, you know. Um, it's not very hard to pull these examples out. There are people here who are just absolutely miserable at work absolutely miserable at work that's emotions and you're pouring your time and you're pouring your best hours of your day in in just just working hard that's the will and you're dwelling on it when you come home that's all you think about it's all you talk about you know and and it, it engages your mind and when your you know when your your emotions and your mind and your will are oriented around that work that's your idol that's your idol what are you doing? You know, you may be sitting here on Sunday, but your true God is your career. Your true God you know, is what you're sacrificing your body and your soul for, your worth. That's what it is. You see that? There are people here in this room, uh, absolutely, you know, probably talking about myself because my idol, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a workaholic, you know, and um, there are people here doesn't mean that I'm miserable here. That's not what I'm saying, you know, but absolutely, I'm definitely a workaholic. Um, intimately involved with somebody. There are people here. Intimately involved with somebody. And just, you know, sleeping with them feels good. Feels good. Um, and it feels intimate. You just get an incredible sense of intimacy there. That's your emotions. And you're investing your time and your money on these people. That's your will. And you're investing arguments you know, you're arguing with these people that you love. You know, that's your mind. And when you're investing your emotions and your will and your, your uh, mind, you know, but there's no real commitment covenantally in marriage. You know, so you sacrifice your purity and you sacrifice financially and emotionally without any life-binding commitment, which is really what sex is designed around. And that relationship ends and you're just devastated. You know why you're devastated? Because you worship. That's what you worship. You're worshiping intimacy and relationships and love. You thought that these things increased your options, increased your potential, increased your freedom, increased your joy. That's why it feels good. But instead, what you're doing is you're decreasing your options, decreasing your potential, decreasing your, your freedom, decreasing your joy. And as a result, these gods have a way of controlling you and corroding your soul. You know, it corrodes your view of yourself. You feel guilt. And it corrodes your relationship with other people. And that's precisely why in Psalm chapter 95, verses 3 and 6 to 7, it teaches us that we should worship the Lord our God. All your emotion, all your will, 
all your mind should be turned to. It says, worship the Lord. Why? Because he is the great king above all gods. That word Lord there, capitalized in your Bibles or in your, in your bulletins. Um, there are many, many words for Lord uh, in the Old and New Testament. But when you refer to God as Lord, sometimes you refer to him as Adonai. Um, that's a Hebrew word that meant God. It's a very generic word. Or Shaddai in some ways, or El, you know. Um, you see that. Um, you see words like um, Elohim. You know, these are all words, generic words that reference God. But here the word Lord is Yahweh. It's a very, very personal word. It's a word that connoted deep intimacy with God. It's a word that connoted intimate relationship, favor from God, only reserved for his people, a sacrificial, eternal, lasting, covenantal love that God has for people, his people, only for his people, reserved only for specifically his people. And he says, that's who you are worshiping. That's the love that you should seek. That's what we are working for, serving. That's the king that we serve. This king that has compassion and love in a way that extends boundaries that we would never be able to cross on our own. That's a love that will not corrode. That's a relationship and an intimacy that will not corrode. He says, we worship him because he is the great king above all gods. He is our maker and we are the flock under his care. Such compassion, such love. Look at the character of God. Beautiful character of God. God knows exactly how destructive and demanding other gods are in our lives. He's not trying to kill your joy. He's trying to increase your joy. He's trying to augment your joy. You know, he knows how, how the power over the, of these things will corrode our lives, the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, you know, so much so that our relationship has become worship. You know, you know if your wife is telling you, you know, you're a different person, you know, you've changed because of these things. You've got to listen. It means that your heart may have so inclined and has so been shaped by that idol in your life that it's become a thing of worship in your life. And that worship will corrode and devastate and destroy. These are warnings, and at the same time, these are blessings to hear. Why? Because God has made a way to set us free. Worship is recognizing that you've already ascribed something in your life that has become or beheld of ultimate value and worth. And what the psalmist here is calling us is you've got to transfer that worth and value to God, to the Lord who loves eternally and in a lasting way. Only when you see that God's love is more satisfying, more valuable than anything else in the world, then you will have a restored sense of worth. The reason why we pursue these things is because there's a, in our hearts, you know, deep, ever since the Garden of Eden, You know, we had worth. But ever since sin entered into our lives, and we're born with this, there's a loss of intimacy. There's a deep, soulful loss of intimacy that we're constantly trying to reclaim in our lives. And and ever since the Garden of Eden, because we've been kicked out of the garden, we lost that relationship and intimacy with God, and as a result, we, we have a sense of worthlessness. And we're working and working. We use relationships and career and power and title, our children, our spouses, you know, anything that we can get our hands on, you know, money, power, title, any of these things, a cause that we're interested in has a source of worth in our lives. That's why. Only when we worship God can we have a restored sense of worth. That's what the psalmist is saying. God does not need our worship in order to be glorified. That's not why we were created. We need to worship God lest our souls begin to corrode as a result. 
you know, we'd be out of our element if we're worshiping anything other than God himself, like a fish out of water, you know, the way flowers need sunlight. That's what we need to do. That's why we need to worship. How do you worship? How do you practice worship? Last point. The first thing is in community. Throughout the text, let's, read, let's walk through this text again. Come, let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, our salvation. Let us come before him and extol him. You know, um, let's go to verse 6. Come, let us bow down. Let us kneel for the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock, that's plural, under his care. Today, if you, plural, hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We start in community. We worship in community. You know, on one hand, Christianity, the Christian experience, is a deeply personal experience. Yet, you, you never experience God fully outside of the context of community, corporately. That's why we come to worship. It's not enough to just read the Bible and have worship and have all those components of worship all alone. You will experience worship there. It will be good. It will be renewing. It will be refreshing. But you will never fully and deeply feel like you've been brought in and experience the community that we have in God, you know, outside of the context of community. Because God, by nature, is community. So the best way to understand and experience and know God himself is to experience in the context of community. You know, and, um, you know, on one hand, then, if you're lonely, you know, if you're lonely, if you're experiencing loneliness, and if you're frustrated because, wow, there's a lack of, like, good community in my life, you know, you're actually probably more primed than anybody else in this room to encounter God. You're prepared. God is preparing you. That's what it means. Okay? Um, but even if you orient your emotions or will or mind in the context of the community, you will not truly worship outside of what the psalmist here is talking about, rest. Outside of resting in God himself, you will, you know, even if you're in community, you will not experience or be able to truly worship. What do I mean by that? Verses 7 to 11, you see this. The psalmist starts out, he says, Today, if you would only hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, which means quarreling, arguing, you know, or as, that, as you did that day at Masa, or testing, that's what it means, in the wilderness, where the ancestors tested me. You know, um, the writer is referencing this period in Exodus chapter 17 where the Israelites, they'd just been saved, they'd just been rescued out of Egypt, out of land of slavery, and yet they were a very rebellious generation. It wasn't like God rescued them because they were such good people. They were very rebellious. And so God had them wandering in a desert, really, for 40 years. It was probably a two-hour flight. Today, if you look at the distance from where they were in Egypt to where they were headed in the land of Canaan, but God had them wandering around in the desert for 40 years before they ended up in Canaan. And during that period, they had turned to false gods. You know, they were worshiping false gods with very, very hardened hearts. And that's what God is referring to. That's what the psalmist here is referring to, a, a narrative in Exodus chapter 17, where the Israelites were quarreling and arguing and testing God. And the psalmist ends chapter 95 with this. this you know, the psalm starts very, very beautifully. 
starts out, you know, with, you know, you know, what worship is and why we worship and who the object, the subject of our worship is and how we're supposed to be worshiping practically. But then he ends with this very enigmatic text, a recounting of history that ends with a very, very bad taste in your mouth. He says, you know, you know, here these are people whose hearts have gone astray. They have not known my ways, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. That's how he ends the psalm. Why does he end the seemingly joyful song of worship with this passage, this account, this recounting? It's pretty confusing until you get to the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 to 11, the author writes this, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. That comes from Hebrews chapter 4. The psalmist is warning us not to just miss out on God's rest. Even after Joshua, you know, took his people into the land of Canaan, the promised land, you know, um, it's this physical example. The author says, here's this physical example, Joshua bringing his people into the land of rest. But he says, there remains then another day, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He says, that physical example is actually pointing us to a deeper spiritual example. And if our physical rest, you know, lets us rest from our physical work, then the gospel would let us rest from our spiritual work. What's our spiritual work? It's religion. Religion is spiritual work. Religion says if you live a good life, if you do good work, you know, if you obey God's commands, then you get to rest. Then you will have peace. Then you will have balance and equilibrium in your life. You know, then you will be acceptable before God because you've lived a good life. However, you know, a living, vital faith in Christ, and this is, this, by the way, this has shaped my life over the last 15 years. I've been, I, I became a Christian sometime between the age of 9 and 24. I used to think it was 9, you know. Uh, I can tell you the exact time, what I was learning at the time that brought me to faith in Christ. But over the course of years, I realized I was very religious, you know, because I was constantly oscillating between pride and guilt. That's how you know. Proud when I did well, and when I did obey, guilt when I didn't obey. And, and that's why I say, you know, I came to Christ probably sometime between the age of 9 and 24 because over the last 15 years, I've come to rediscover this truth that a living and vital faith in the gospel says you can only rest not because of anything you did, or anything that you've earned, but through faith in Christ and what he's done and what he's earned for you. What that means is that in all of us right now, every one of us here are tired. We're weary. We're tired physically. We're tired emotionally. We're tired spiritually. We're tired of trying to fulfill all of our relational expectations around us. We're tired of working to earn approval from other people all the time, constantly. You know, your, your, your heart is a factory just producing, you know, insecurity, insecurity after insecurity, and you, and you work to earn some sort of relief from that. We're tired of trying to, you know, figure out 
you know, how to figure out our inner dissatisfaction, how to cure that by finding the right place in our careers, by finding the right career for that matter, you know, um, bank account, having the right number in our bank account, by having perfect children, yeah, just have the right child, the perfect child, you know. And by the way, when we do that, we, have, we end up with very bitter children, you know, and bitter souls for that matter. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me. Come to me. He doesn't say, come to, he doesn't say obey my commandments. He says, come to me. Everyone who is weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You will find rest for your souls. That's what he says. He's not just passing off empty words. He's not providing empty promises. How does Jesus, how does coming to Jesus give us rest? And it's because he did the work for us. This is the truth. This is the truth that seals it. You know, this is the reason why we're blown away. You know, you'd be blown away just by the image and the value and the worth of who God is alone. The majestic beauty of Jesus, the majestic greatness of God, the kingliness of our King. But when you see that He has done the work that we were called to do, and He did it perfectly for us, that's the beginning of what's going to turn your heart over. That's the beginning. This is the truth. That's, this is the reason why we sing. I mean, looking at God as king, I don't know if that's going to make you sing until you see what the king has done for you. That's going to make you sing. Looking at the beauty of Christ, sometimes that's going to make you sing. You know, Adam beheld the beauty of Eve and he sang. That was the first poem in world history. You know, Genesis chapter 2, right? But so looking at the beauty of Christ, it may make you sing. But when you see the beauty of Christ becoming ugly on the cross cross for you, that's going to make your heart turn. That's going to make your heart sing a very, very different note. Do you understand what I'm saying? Why do we sing? Why do we shout aloud? You know, verse 3 to to 5, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. The sea is His. What do you see? Here's Jesus walking on water. The sea is His. The greatness of God. The sea is His. He says He calms the storms. That's the greatness of Jesus. That's the, the majestic greatness of Jesus. You know, in his hand are the depths of the earth. So on one hand, you have the greatness of Jesus and who he is. He calms the seas. He calms the storms, you know. But at the same time, in his hands are the depths of the earth. He was buried. That's how you know the depths of the earth belong to him too, because he was buried. The gospel shows us that the great king, the the highest one became low. The great one became the lowest one. In Matthew chapter 7, right, this is the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount. That's how we kind of tie this whole thing together because we're preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. That's the series that we've been in. Towards the tail end, Jesus tells, says something very, very interesting. He says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. 
away from me, you evildoers. What's happening here? People are basically they're calling out to Jesus. They're calling out to Jesus. They're saying, you are our Lord. They're reasoning with Jesus. You know, they're confessing that he is Lord. That's your mind. They're saying, Lord, Lord, you know, do, have you not done these things? Lord, Lord. Whenever you see the doublet there, that's emotional language. They're singing it. They're crying out. So you have emotional language. You have, you know, intelligent, logical, reasoning language. They say, we've been prophesying in your name. They've been, we've been driving demons out in your name. They're submitting their will. They're doing things for God. They say, did we not do that? They're doing it in community. You got all the components there. You got the emotion. You got the will. You got the mind. You got community. It's all done in the context of community. But Jesus says, I never knew you. That is the scariest thing in the world, isn't it? You could be doing all those things, wrapping up your emotions and your will and your mind in the context of community, and yet Jesus says, I never knew you. I never even knew you. I mean, all those things that you've done and said, I never even heard it. Never got to me. Flew over my head. Religion focuses on works. Why? To be known. So you'll be known by God. Jesus says, you do that, I never knew you. And that's why you have no joy. And that's why you have no assurance in your life. But here it says we can sing for joy. We can shout for joy. We can be thankful and joy. Why? Because we are known for the Lord, the ground. For the Lord is the great God. He's the great God, the great king above all gods. And yet he knows us. We are the sheep of his pasture. The great God, he says, we are his sheep. We are his flock. Jesus, in John chapter, John chapter 10, I know my sheep. My sheep know me. I call them out by name. That's what he says. The God of the seas, the creator of the universe, he is personal. He came down. The most beautiful, the most perfect, the worshiper of God, the most perfect worshiper of God who ever walked the earth is the shepherd who loves you, cares for you, feeds you, nurtures you, has compassion for you. How do you know that? On the cross, the wrath of God was displayed. We saw the wrath of God. And we saw that because it consumed, that wrath consumed Jesus. Jesus received the punishment that we deserved so that we, why? So that we could have the beauty, the glory, the, the blessing that, that Jesus deserved. The wrath fell on Jesus. Jesus cries out, my God, my God. What he's saying is this, I'm being stripped of my joy. I'm being stripped of my joy, stripped of my assurance. God is our God. Why? Because on the cross, Jesus cried, I am forsaken. You have forsaken me, he said. You've abandoned me. In other words, I am no longer your son. We have the presence of God in our lives because Jesus was forsaken. We are loved by God. We have the assurance of love. Every time you look at the cross, you've got to see love. Why? Because Jesus on the cross was disowned by God. That makes us sons. That makes us sons. That makes us his children. We can rest from our works because Jesus on the cross experienced the deepest, most soulful unrest that anyone could ever endure. And yet all the while, on the cross, suffering, forsaken by God, completely void of God, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what he was doing? He was reciting Psalm chapter 22. All the while, God is disowning him. Jesus is worshiping God, still worshiping God to the T still acknowledging God. God has disowned him, and yet he says, you are my God. You are still my God. 
That's got to get you. That's got to move you. Even though the wrath, while the wrath of God is being poured on Jesus, while he's being abandoned, not only by his friends, not only by everybody around him, not only by the criminal who is on one side of him, Jesus is still worshiping God. To the death, Jesus was ascribing ultimate value through his body, his mind, his emotions, his will to the Father. He was doing that. That's worship. And when he said, it is finished, you know, what he's saying is this. It's finally over. I finally did it perfectly. Why do you think he did that? He did it for you. Because we are so weak in our worship. We are so flawed even in our worship. And that's the end of our work. It's finished. That's the end of our work. The work you do does not add one ounce more God's love towards you. When you are at your worst, you know, God's love for you has not changed one bit compared to when you are at your best because it has nothing to do with being at your worst or best. It's not based on your merit, but Christ's merit. It's not based on your righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. Imputed, transferred to you. That's the gospel. It wouldn't be good news if it wasn't that. As we close, you know, when you do all these things, you know, all the things that we went through today in our bulletin, without letting the truth of the gospel melt you, you know, even the ritual of worship becomes work, doesn't it? It becomes mechanical for us. It becomes work for us. But this is the end of work. Let the gospel take hold. We're about to sing a song in response. You know, as we do that, will you just reflect on the beauty of Christ? And let's put our emotions, let's put our will, let's put our, you know, when we say we're putting our will, we're saying, you know what, I really believe this and I want to live this out. And let's, don't put your mind at the door, bring your mind, integrate your mind, integrate your will, integrate your emotions, put it all together, let your whole person bend and bow to the beauty of Christ hung on the cross for you. Let his ugliness be your beauty. Let his rejection be be your presence, the presence of God for you. That's got to come for you. That's the only thing that's going to give you peace. That's the only thing that's going to last. You know, when this whole thing called the world, earth, dies away, what do you think you've got left? You're either going to have the presence of God, you know, organically real in your life, or you're going to have the absence of God organically and real in your life. And we're all living that out right now. We're living that out. You're either living out the presence or the absence of God in your life. So hell isn't something that you're just given as a punishment. You're choosing it. You're choosing that. You're either choosing the presence or the absence of God, you know, in your worship, by what you worship. Will you reflect on the beauty and the worth of God through Jesus in Christ today? And while we do that, as flawed as it may be, you know, some of us are coming in, we're like, oh my goodness, I had a horrible night. <laughs> and here I am. I barely got in here. And my life is a mess. You can worship perfectly before God. Because what of Christ worshiped perfectly. He became the mess for you. That's what we put our faith in. Will you do that? Let that melt your heart and soul and mind and strength into the Father today.
Let's pray.